You are listening to a recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.sdrosecc.org. Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7. If you were the threes and fours class, thank you for worshiping with us. You're dismissed to your class now. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning, and we'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 10. If you need a copy of God's Word, just slip up your hand. We've got extras in the back coming down the aisles. They'll be glad to hand you one. I want to begin this morning, before we read the text, with the theological foundation for what are going to be some very practical exhortations from God's Word. And here's the theological foundation for this week's passage. Here it is. God loves you. God desires an active forever relationship with you. He has proved his love for you through the sacrificial death of Jesus. He absorbed all the penalty for your sin, paid the eternal price of sin for your freedom to dwell with him forever. He's made promises to you. He's promised that nothing for all of eternity can separate you from the God of love. Through faith in Jesus, your forever future is joy-filled relationship with God, the one from whom every good thing flows. He will not change his mind. He will not take back his offer. He will not drop you at the first sign of difficulty or failure or sin. He will not go back on the covenant made with you. He will not break his vow to you. He will not divorce you. What God has joined together, let no man separate And through the cross of Christ and the gift of his spirit, what God has joined together is the sinner to a holy God by the grace of God through the cross of Christ. The passage from 1 Corinthians 7 this morning is about marriage and divorce. But you cannot read this paragraph with these practical exhortations without the larger biblical story as the backdrop. The larger thing that the smaller thing, marriage, is meant to proclaim to the world. God spoke this analogy in the book of Hosea, and he told Hosea to write to the people that this is what God was going to do in the world. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19 says, I will betroth you to me forever. 
I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And Paul would later affirm this analogy designed by God with the words, Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The Bible is clear that marriage promises are a part of God's design because they're designed to reflect God's eternal promises to us. You did not just evolve from animals to appreciate something like lifelong monogamous promises to one another in marriage. That comes from a God who gave us that institution, that designed that kind of relationship. There's a purpose in it. Now, that's the theological backdrop. That's the big story. And now, with those things freshly contemplated, let's zoom into these very practical exhortations about a particular issue about marriage and divorce happening in Corinth in the first century in the church of Corinth. Now, Paul addresses them. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. We're going to read through verse 17, then we're going to pause and pray uh, for God to give us understanding. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife? whether you will save your husband. How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Now, this is my rule in all the churches. All right, let's, let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for expositional preaching and the working through text of Scripture because we see your sovereign hand guiding us into text perhaps we've never studied before or never thought we should study as a whole corporate gathering. God, we, you lead us this morning into this text by your grace on this particular day for some particular reason. God, you have ordained that every person is sitting in this room in these seats to hear this word. Help us to understand it. Help us to believe it. Help us to apply it. Father, guard my mouth. Help me to say only that which is true. And Father, I pray that you would help us to respond to that truth by your grace, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 10. To the married I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Paul is delivering a charge. A command. He's declaring a command for the people in the Corinthian church. He's declaring quite simply that divorce 
is not the will of God. That's truth number one. Divorce is not God's will. And the first thing you probably notice about the text is that odd parenthetical statement. Not I, but the Lord. Now, why does he say that? Well, because he's directly quoting the very words of the Lord Jesus. Okay? And Paul recognizes this, that he's quoting verbatim the words of Jesus. So let's put those words before our eyes to make sure we know where Paul's getting all this from. So look at Mark chapter 10, verses 7 through 12. This is what Paul is directly quoting from the Lord himself. Mark chapter 10, verse 7. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is Jesus' words. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples asked Jesus again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus is pretty clear here about his will, about God's will for creation of the world. Divorce is not God's will. It's not his will for a wife to divorce her husband. He repeats it twice, just with both parties, just to make sure there's no confusion. It's not God's will for the, the wife to divorce her husband. It's not God's will for the husband to divorce his wife. And Paul says that if a Christian has already separated from their spouse to pursue another re- relationship, he basically says you should stop, repent, and seek to reconcile with your spouse, if at all possible. This is straightforward teaching from the Holy Spirit-inspired Paul, straightforward teaching from Jesus himself, and according to Jesus in this text, this is straight from God's original design in creation. So Jesus, so Paul's quoting Jesus, Jesus is quoting from Genesis 1 and 2. (laughs) Jesus is saying, I'm not... Even I, son of God, am not making this up. This has been the design for human flourishing since humanity was created. He quotes from Genesis 1 and 2 to make the point that God's original design for marital faithfulness is God's good idea for human flourishing. Now, let me pause here. One of the reasons that God speaks so clearly about divorce or against divorce is because divorce being contrary to God's original design is therefore not good for you. If you're here this morning, let me say that again. To to divorce someone is not for your ultimate and eternal good. If you're here this morning and you are contemplating something like divorce and you think that it will be for you some kind of solution, then you need to listen very carefully to the Word of God this morning. God does not give commands in the Scripture to enslave you in miserable places. He does not give commands to you to withhold something good from you. There's no motivation in the heart of God which says, I will declare these things to my people so that they will have less joy. You understand that? There is no motivation in the heart of God that he would give you some sort of rule or command that you might have less joy. If he says, don't do something, it is for your good not to do that. 
If he says do something, it is for your good for you to do that. So, so if you say this, do not fall for the lies of the serpent, which suggests God is keeping something good from you. That there's some better life, some better way of life than the life that you're in, and all you have to do to get that better life is to sin. Now that is a very familiar tactic. And we saw how that worked for Adam and Eve. Do not disobey, assuming that disobedience is somehow for your benefit. That's not our God, and it will not be good for you. If he says, don't eat the fruit lest you die, don't eat the fruit. (laughs) Believe what he says in his word. If he says, don't divorce, if if, if there's any way of preventing it, if, there, if it depends upon you at all, believe that fighting for your marriage will be eternally better than giving up on your marriage. And if you think that's tone deaf, and you're sitting in the chair right now, and you're like, you don't know about this situation, I'm just missing it, or I'm not being sensitive to the really difficult marriages, that the best thing to do is just to kind of throw in the towel, start over, move on. I know it's sin, but it's a little sin. God forgives. You'll get it over. It'll be better one day. Let's just keep reading, because Paul recognizes that there are some marriages that are very difficult to fight for. And he continues in verse 12. He says, To the rest I say, parentheses, I, not the Lord. Now, now let me pause here because you can get caught up in this parenthetic statement and say, when Paul says, I, not the Lord here, um, does that mean Paul's about to say something that's not authoritative? It's not scripture. We don't have to listen to it. It's Paul. It, this is just Pauly stuff. This isn't uh, Jesus stuff. Um, no, all Paul is saying is I'm no longer directly quoting Jesus, the Lord, okay? Because he just directly quoted Jesus, So now he's not directly quoting Jesus. What he's going to do is apply the principle that Jesus gave to a very specific scenario happening in Corinth that Jesus didn't address. But the application is from Jesus' principle. Does that make sense? So this isn't like turn your ears off because this is no longer the Lord talking. This is just Paul. No, no, no. This is the Holy Spirit through Paul applying what Jesus said. Okay? Verse 12. To the rest I say, I not the Lord... That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And there's just a follow-up repetition of the same thing. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Here's truth number two. Divorce is not God's will even if your spouse rejects Jesus. Now, before we immediately try to apply this to our own situation, we need to pause and just consider how real this was for first century believers in Corinth. Now, let's let's think contextually here for a minute. Prior to the missional efforts in Corinth, how many Christian people were in the city of Corinth? Zero. Almost everyone would have been pagan. No one would have had a Christian morality. 
No one would have had a Christian understanding of marriage. No one would have understood sin. No one would have understood their need for salvation. No one would have known the true purpose and meaning of human life. No one would have known God. Idol worship and sexual promiscuity would have been the norm of society. Idol worship would have been the way you feasted, the way you partied, the way that you carried on your annual family traditions. So take all your family traditions that you hold dear right now and then wrap idol worship and pagan idolatry into those family traditions. I mean, your life was about worshiping false gods or at least incorporating them into what you thought was the purpose of life. The cultural values of ancient Rome were anything and everything but the values of Jesus Christ. And then... The good news of Jesus was proclaimed in the streets of Corinth that there's one true God, that these statues are dead things leading you to an eternal hell, that there's one true God who loves you so much he sent his son to live the life you couldn't live and die the death you deserve to die and raise again on the third day so that you might have new life in him. He's real. He's alive. He's changed my life. And then imagine... Becoming a Christian in that Corinthian world. When you come to faith in Christ, now all of a sudden, bowing the knee to Caesar is something that you cannot do because you know who the true king is. Your life priorities change, how you want to spend your money changes, how you want to spend your time changes, how you understand what sin is. Literally, the ultimate goal of life changes, your sense of identity. It's different than it once was. And now now that you've experienced this cataclysmic sort of faith change, for some, their families didn't experience the same change. Now, your marriage existed within that value system from the moment that you got married to this person, had children with them, and now all of a sudden, how you want to raise those children is different than what you agreed upon when you got married. Now you have changed, and your spouse has not. In fact, your spouse is hostile to the idea of of stopping the idol worship in the home, out of fear that maybe a curse would come on the house? How do you fight for a marriage when your spouse rejects your Savior? How do you raise your kids when your spouse wants your kids to bow the knee to Caesar and not to Christ? Meanwhile, you believe at your deepest heart level that your kids, if they grow up without putting faith in Jesus... They stand eternally condemned by a holy God because they reject the salvation he's offered. How do you seek physical intimacy when your spouse rejects what has now become the deepest part of who you are? How do you be one flesh when your spouse does not share the commonality in the most important thing in the universe? You don't agree on the purpose of marriage, the purpose of life, what happens after death. Not only that, in the first century, it would not be long in Corinth before the Roman government began to crack down on the Christian movement. It would not be long in church history before wide-scale persecution would arise so that your faith now is not just annoying, 
it's dangerous. And it could potentially cost your family if you keep believing in Jesus. Now, that's the situation for many people in the first century. Surely, this degree of difference is grounds for divorce, right? I mean, surely, pursuit of this kind of marriage with this much separation, but when entire worldviews apart, surely it would be good to just leave this relationship and start over. You're a new creation. You're born again. Like, just, just do over. Find someone else who believes in Jesus. And surely, Paul will explain why it's okay to abandon such a reason. But perhaps to the surprise of the reader, that's not what Paul does. What Paul does is he doubles down on the necessity of the believer in Jesus to love their husband and wife and fight for that marriage and continue to live with them if they consent to live with you. Now, notice what Paul doesn't say. Now, this is, we need to hear this. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if the spouse is kind to you, stay. If the spouse accepts the gospel, stay. If the spouse is easy to love, stay. If the spouse expresses love to you, stay. No, Paul says, if the unbelieving spouse consents to stay, then you, believer, must not give up on them. You must not divorce them. You must love them the way Jesus loved you. There's this paragraph in Tim Keller's book, Meaning of Marriage. If you've never read it, I'd highly encourage you to read it. There's a paragraph that I'm sure I've quoted before because it's good, but I'll quote it again because it's good. This is what he says. In the context of talking about marriage, this is what Tim Keller says. He says, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive to me. No, he was in agony, and he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he loved us. Not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. And that is why I'm going to love my spouse. And Tim Keller says this to the, to the married person in the difficult marriage. He says, speak to your heart like that, and then fulfill the promises made on your wedding day. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, Paul's going to continue uh, to, to bring um, uh, arguments to this. He's going to anticipate some things. And, and I want you to look at the next verse, verse 14. Now, this, this verse, admittedly, is very difficult to interpret. This is, this is a hard verse in the Bible to get at what he's getting at. So let me just read it, and then we'll see if we can make sense of it. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, what in the world does it mean that the unbelieving spouse and children are made holy because of the unbelieving partner? Now, this is, we have to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So the first thing that we need to acknowledge is we know what this cannot mean or what this does not mean because it would contradict the whole teaching of Scripture. 
This cannot mean that unbelieving spouses and children are eternally saved from God's judgment as long as their spouse believes. This cannot mean that because that would contradict scores upon scores upon scores of of Scripture, right? Not only does it contradict all the teaching of Scripture elsewhere, it actually contradicts the teaching of this paragraph. (laughs) Because in verse 16, just two verses later, Paul's going to explicitly articulate what the hope is. The hope is the unbelieving spouse will believe and be saved. That's verse 16. And so if he's hoping that they're saved, he's assuming they're not right now, right? So we have, to, we have to realize no person is forgiven of their sin by virtue of someone else's faith. You, the individual, are accountable to God who created you and who is keeping you alive right now in this very moment. You don't get in to heaven on your grandmother's faith or your parents' faith or your spouse's faith. The way, the truth, and life invites you to believe in him. You are accountable to the God who created you. Now, so if that's not what it means, then you got to be like, okay, well, what in the world does it mean <laughs> that your believing spouse makes you holy? So let me give you a couple options. Option number one. It could most simply mean that the family is set apart. Now, holy means to be set apart. They are set apart from the world because they now have something the rest of the world doesn't. They have constant access to the saving message of Jesus through the believing spouse. I mean, these are not unreached people. The person with the gospel is in the home. (laughs) They are set apart and different from all the other families in the Roman Empire. They are unlike all other Roman households. They have the way, the truth, and life dwelling in a member of the family right in the whole household. So the word holy could simply mean set apart from all the rest of the people in Corinth option number one. Good option. I could believe that. Option number two. One of the suggestions that I found most interesting was that uh, some in the community in Corinth were advocating for divorce because they thought if we remain connected, associated to these pagan husbands or pagan wives, then we ourselves are unclean. We're unholy because we're attached to them. Like, can I really be physical, intimate with somebody that just got back from bowing the knee to a false god and participating in in what God hates? Can I really then that night say, hey, you want to go out to a movie and like, you know, Netflix and chill or something, right? Like, is that holy? Like, is that okay for me to have a closeness to that spouse, though they're that far from God? The Old Testament had this concept of holiness code to where it designated certain things and people as unholy, meaning untouchable. And if I were to touch that person like a leper or whatsoever, then I become unholy. So, so th- some people are saying, I can divorce because being with them makes them and me unholy. So I can divorce because I need distance from these non-Christian people. So if that's the background assumed, what Paul's doing is, is he's reassuring them that your pagan families are not unholy to you. Like, stay with them. The fact that you are with them makes the marriage holy because marriage itself is holy according to God's design. Does that make sense? You following with me? You get what I'm saying? Your husband is not untouchable. Your wife is not untouchable. Believers are, are not to separate themselves from unbelieving family when they put faith in Christ. Rather, what they're to do is to draw near to them. God has made marriage holy, the covenant of marriage holy, regardless of who you already made vows with. So that's option number two. Option number three, last one, 
and, and, and I think that this, is, this option is true regardless of it connects to this particular verse. But here's another way of understanding it. We understand it particularly in light of verse 16. So jump to verse 16 with me. Verse 16, Paul asks two rhetorical questions. They're designed to help the reader persevere in the difficult marriage. And, and he asks these questions, verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And here's what I think is happening here. Paul's holding out the possibility to the reader. If you're tempted to leave your spouse, and what Paul's holding out to them is like a possibility, a potentiality. If you stay with them, they might come to know the saving grace of Jesus through your staying. And so this is true regardless of if it's connected to the previous verse. And so let me give you this truth. Truth number three. If married to an unbeliever, if you're in this situation, love them by reflecting Jesus to them. Love them by reflecting Jesus to them. Now, this is not encouraging you, young singles, to go find yourself a non-believing partner. We can find other places where that would be discouraged. Missionary dating is never a good idea, ever. But this is addressing those who are in this situation. By the sovereign will of God, this is where you're at presently. And in this case, your mission now is to point them to the Jesus whom you love in hopes that they would be saved. Now, the hope, uh, uh, the hope is, and I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 3. The hope is is that, that your spouse would see something supernatural in you, something different in you, something set apart in you, and, and that that difference that they see in you, though they couldn't articulate it, it's the active, sanctifying hope, faith, and love the Holy Spirit's given you. So the hope is they would see something in you so attractive, so different, so Christ-like, that they would say, I don't have that, and I want that. Help me understand how to have that. So look at how Peter articulates this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, same situation, same situation, unbelieving spouse, right? Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So same situation is happening as Paul's writing to the Christians who are in exile and Peter's writing to the Christians who are in exile. And notice what he doesn't encourage the believing spouse to do. He doesn't encourage them to leave, but he does also doesn't encourage them to argue with their spouse every day <laughs> about why Jesus really rose from the dead and how they need to get it together. Notice, notice that... Uh, what he does not do is say, every single time you open your mouth or every time they open their mouth, shove scripture down their throat because eventually they'll be saved. What Peter advocates for here is an approach to your spouse that makes the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life attractive, blessed, 
precious, good, even in the eyes of your unbelieving spouse. You know what unbelieving spouses love? Spouses who are quick to forgive, who are selfless, who are sacrificial, who walk in the fruit of the spirits. Even unbelievers are happy to be married to someone like that, right? So yes, speak the gospel to your spouse when opportunity and the spirit leads, but what Peter says is, is, let your walk with Christ be undeniable in their presence. And that becomes one of the goals of the Christian's life. There should be a sense in which the Christ-likeness in your love for your spouse draws your spouse to the love of Christ. Now, um, let me pause here. And I'm sure people are listening online or in the room. Let me talk to the unbelieving spouses in the room for just a moment. If you respect and love your spouse's belief in the Bible, if you respect their belief in the Bible, you have to respect their deep desire for you to believe the Bible too. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me say this again. If your spouse loves you, then they want deeply what is eternally best for you. They desperately want you to go to heaven with them. They desperately, with every fiber in their being, want you to have eternal life with them. They want you to share with them in that which is good and holy and God-honoring and a blessing now and forevermore. They want you to know the love of Christ that they have found. They want your marriage to reflect the love of God in deep and profound ways. And so if you're an unbeliever in the room, married to a believing spouse, or you're listening online, do not be angry that your spouse genuinely wants you to have what's eternally best for you. If they didn't want that, they wouldn't love you, right? So do not be angry. That's why, I mean, that's why uh, bumping their heads along the way, they may say things sometimes that are convicting or hard or, you know, they're not meaning to put you down. They, they're wanting to you to join in what they found, which is so good. So be gracious. They're not perfect. They will not be perfect. They are sinner. That's why they've put trust in Jesus, because they need forgiveness. And I've noticed, one thing I've noticed over the years is that unbelieving spouses are very quick to point out the sins and the flaws of their believing counterparts. Almost as if they're happy that they have failed to meet the standard of their Christian lives, and now you're one of us. But recognize that if they're claiming to be perfect, you send them to me, because that's not the teaching of this church. <laughs> We're all sinners. Just some of us has found the Savior. <laughs> Forgiveness for our sins. We're not made perfect. And so, yes, there will be imperfection as they pursue this thing called the Christian life. So, if, if, now back to the Christian in the relationship. Do not pile on yourself guilt or responsibility or your spouse's salvation on your shoulders. Notice even how Paul asks the question. He doesn't make a promise here. He says, who knows whether they will be saved or not. He doesn't say, get it together, it's on you. 
No, he says, be faithful. God is the God of salvation, right? So, so if this part of the sermon, you feel a weight pressing down on you as it's up to you, that's not what Paul says. All Paul is saying to be faithful and then to trust the God who is faithful to save. Now, to the believing spouse in the end, last little category here, who has um, done everything you can and it's not enough to save the marriage. I mean, what if you do everything you can, believing divorce is not God's will, and then divorce is thrust upon you anyway? Well, to you, Paul is not silent either. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, he's talking about the Christian, a family of God, brother, sister, is not enslaved, period. God has called you to peace. Now listen, we live in a broken world where we experience all kinds of heartache that is outside of our control. Divorce is an awful thing in the world. The consequences are deep, lasting, life-changing, but for the Christian, they're not life-ending. If you fight for your marriage and your partner walks away, Paul says you're not enslaved to this, you are no longer bound to this, and what God calls you to is peace. And this is truth number four. If abandoned, you are called to peace. Last week, the last truth was marriage is not ultimate. And what Paul says is that even if this falls, you're called to peace. Peace is a theologically rich word here. It has these overtones of God's promises. Peace with God is what God calls you to, Christian. Through faith in Christ, you have peace with God, peace with yourself, peace with others for all of eternity. Now, divorce is anything but peaceful. But Christians, you've been called to a peace, not of this world, a peace that cannot be easily shaken, a peace that will not be undone. Divorce is awful for lots of reasons. It's painful because someone who made very important promises to you breaks those promises. Someone who knew you most intimately now rejects you. It's one thing for someone to reject you and they don't really know you. It's another thing for someone to reject you, and they've known you very deeply. Divorce is painful because after becoming one flesh with someone, you're ripped from that someone. It is, it's, a, it's an atrocious thing to go through. But for the Christian person who's experienced pain, abandonment, rejection, and regret, what Paul is saying, there can still be peace. Because here's the, here's the reality. Here's the bigger story that's happening in the world. God will not break his vows to you. God, who knows you most intimately, does not reject you. He doesn't invite you into a relationship with himself and then get a little into it and then find, man, you've got some quirks that I really can't stand. I think I'm done with this. No, no, no. God knows you better than you know yourself and then he has decided to eternally stay 
Not only has he not rejected you, he has chosen you before the foundation of the world, before you did anything good or evil. God has joined himself to you so that no man can separate. Peace is your eternal calling. And as you meditate on your future promises in a new heavens and a new earth where everything sad will be undone, you bring that peace from eternity future into your present as you think about those promises will never, ever, ever be revoked because of Jesus' love for me. And so if abandoned, abused, or neglected, you've been invited into the arms of Jesus who stayed on the cross for you and who will forever stay in relationship with you. If abandoned, you're called to peace. Now, I want to bring us to conclusion here with a concept that will be our starting place next week. That's verse 17. Verse 17 This will be our starting place for next week. Paul says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now, perhaps you're listening to this this morning and none of the situations we've been describing describes you or your situation. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're uninterested in marriage. Or maybe the divorce happened so long ago it's hardly relevant in your lives, whatever the case may be. Here's the point. There's a God who is sovereign over your life, a life in which he has assigned you, a life which you are now living, and his call on you is to trust him and to be faithful to him because he will always be faithful to you. And that's our final truth, truth five. In all situations, you are called to faith. Many situations in the world are difficult. Many kinds of lives have unique difficulties. Christians are not promised a life without suffering, a life without strife. They're not promised a fulfillment of the American dream. They're not promised a marriage the way they've always wanted it. No, what they're promised is that God, who is sovereign over their whole lives, has promised that what they're enduring now is creating for them an eternal weight of glory. They're promised that one day it will be worth it. So regardless this morning of past mistakes or regrets or shame or sin, the life you are now in is a life that the Lord has assigned to you for now. And the task for you now is to look at the faithfulness of God and trust. You are called to peace in the midst of trials and tribulation now and peace forevermore. And so let's pause and pray before we respond in worship. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture. It presents to us a responsibility, a kind of life that is difficult, a kind of life that we cannot live on our own, Um, we are all sinful and helpless and hopeless apart from your spirit and your strength within us. And so, God, I pray for the over a hundred situations that are represented in this room. Father, that they would hear the word of God this morning, heed the word of God this morning, and then lean into the bigger story. A faithful God who will not break his vows to them. Lord, help us to call out for your help now and help us to respond rightly in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.